0: Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith.
1: Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. And I'm Tim Cronin. And today we have two representatives of the firm Act of Communication, Andrew Capleshaw and Alexandra Wright. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Hi, thanks for having us.
1: It's good to be here. I made the mistake perhaps of watching one of your videos last night. It was the actor's tools of persuasion. So now I'm very self-conscious of whether my inflection is right and so forth. So (laughs) I'll just struggle through. Why don't the two of you tell us a bit about yourselves and about the company you work for?
3: Sure. Well, Active Communication has been in existence for we're approaching 50 years It is the brainchild of two performers, or rather a performer and an actress playwright, who posed the question, what can lawyers learn from actors? The actual story of it being born was a friend of Catherine's going to a jury trial, coming back and complaining that it was basically the worst play he had ever seen. He had no idea what was going on, and he didn't really know what he was supposed to do at the end as a juror. And Catherine thought, you know, there's a lot of tools that we use, that lawyers could steal or lawyers could take and if they're better able to tell a story if they're better able to communicate emotionally then the jury will be better equipped to reach a fair and just verdict and so they began this process of incorporating a century's worth of techniques and tools into courtroom communication techniques Along the way, they picked up team members like Alex and myself, who had our own unique backgrounds and we bring to the table our own life experiences. But really along the way, it dovetailed into being very heavy in the witness preparation side, because what you would find is that there really was a sorting of lawyers and great lawyers like the ones who have brought us on this podcast, they get their skill set very well developed and they incorporate these tools and the market kind of helps lift them to the top. But every new case, they get a witness and that witness's ability to communicate and connect is going to vary case to case. And so our role became that of witness preparation going in. And the biggest misconception people have is that we teach witnesses what to say and it couldn't be further from the truth. What we're doing is we're taking away all of the things that make them inauthentic self-conscious, ineffective in telling their story and sort of stripping them down to who they really are so that the jury can get to know them. So those are our two pieces, the courtroom training and case preparation piece, and then the witness preparation piece, that latter piece being a specialty of Alex, who I guess can introduce herself now.
2: Hello, I'm Alexandra Wright, people call me Alex. I was laughing when you said you'd watch the videos and you're worried now about our inflection. I also teach at UCLA. And I had a student once say, we were talking about all this stuff, and she said, God, you must be horrible to date. And I was like, oh my God! <laughs> I was like, why would you say that? And she goes, because you could just tell if someone's lying, or you could tell if someone's not being present with you. And of course, I'm going, man, maybe that's been my issue all along. But I'm very fortunate to be working with active communication. Like I said, I'm a professor at UCLA, and I love the work we do. It's interesting. Most people are really, really bad at talking about their pain and talking about their suffering, especially by the time that we kind of get our hands on them for deposition or trial, because it's been sometimes years since whatever happened, happened. And in that time period, people stop talking about their pain because they don't want to make other people feel uncomfortable. And That to me is one of the hardest things about what we do, but also one of the most beautiful things about what we do is that I hope that we allow people to have a space where they feel like they can express their pain and talk about their pain and really feel seen for who they are and what they've gone through. So I always like to say that acting and also the work that we do with lawyers and witnesses, it's not about putting something else on. It's not about saying, ooh, do this, do that. It's more about taking things away. It's about going that thing you do that you think keeps you protected, that you think keeps you safe. It's just a defense mechanism and it's not
4: nearly as interesting as the authentic you. How you guys described it to me is you're trying to help people become better storytellers to convey their story because that's how people think. Yep.
2: That's exactly it.
3: Yeah. There's a talk that I give and it got remolded several years ago. It was how to reach the Trump voter in your jury. It really gets back to this idea of what is it that moves people? What do people connect with? And there's a lot of psychology behind this truth. I think Jonathan Haidt is a great, he's sort of a pop social science guy in that he takes some really good research and theory and puts it into readable format. And so Haidt is a good place to get an anthology of the research that presents this concept. And the concept is this, human beings think in story first, right? So when you see a cliff, a picture of a cliff You don't think, oh, that's a cliff. What you think in microseconds before you get to the word cliff is first something akin to the act of grabbing something near you so you don't fall. And then second is the story of yourself or someone else falling off that cliff and dying. And all of this is happening in a matter of literally like less than a second. And then you get to, oh, that's a cliff. You know, that is something that I know to be represented by the words cliff and it's over there. So I'm not going to fall off of it, but the story component that exists at a level below even words, the story component is what your brain knows first. And that is where the direct translation of what we do over into trial work. And, you know, when you think about a lot of what's happened in trial over the years, that's what ball was tapping into with reptile, Mm -hmm. right? Is that things are happening on an innate level one of the things that he doesn't articulate well enough is that what is happening is best understood as story. And what we're talking about doing is figuring out what I call the pinch and the ouch, right? Figuring out what it is about a given story that grabs you on a base level. And that's something we as actors train for years to develop that sensitivity And then once you've developed that sensitivity, you can identify that story within the story that moves you and grabs you by the gut,
4: and then you can develop that story. And so if you're helping to prep like a plaintiff, for example, you're trying to help them find their story, right? And so how do you guys do that? What's your process?
2: We always start off the same way, which is what questions or concerns do you have? And- Andrew has a great kind of metaphor for this. It's the worrying about the oven that's on in the kitchen. It's like if they're sitting there thinking about something about the deposition or the trial or concern or a question they have, they're not going to be able to focus on the prep or on the storytelling. So we always start with that and how they answer that question, whatever their question or concern is, it gives us a ton of information about how we should move forward and the types of questions that we ask. And then it's really about asking questions, asking how they feel, asking for specific moments and instances, and looking for what I like to call satellites, which is sometimes the witness will just kind of toss something out, something that to them feels kind of like inconsequential, or maybe they even mutter it under their breath, or it's a little aside that they do it themselves. And that little satellite can oftentimes contain an immense amount of information. And that's typically what we like to follow up on is, you know, earlier you said, oh, well, that's not important. What do you mean? Why do you think that's not important?
3: So you use the term satellite. I love that. And I think your satellite is something that's akin to my pinch in the ouch.
2: Yeah, yeah. What
3: we're looking for is we're looking for changes, right? We're looking for little alarm bells and we're picking these things up from our acting career, but also we're borrowing from other consultants. So I'll give you an example, metaphors. Robin Wishart, who's a brilliant brain and spine attorney from Canada who lectures a lot at AHA, She talks a lot about metaphors and plain language. You know, I had a guy once in a case and he said, you know, my dad used to say that you're either a grape or you're a raisin. And before this happened, I was a grape, but now I'm a raisin. And I knew the minute I heard that metaphor, I have to chase this. And I said, well, tell me about the difference between a grape and a raisin. And within two or three minutes, he was in tears. And this was a guy that I had not been able to crack for quite some time. So a metaphor is one example. We're also looking for micro-expressions. This is where the training comes in and why, you know, like for example, when we brought Alex on board, what we were interested in was Alex's training and what kind of a background did she have? Because I come from a school, a technique called Meisner technique. And the Meisner technique is all about the idea that acting is not doing, that it's reacting right? That it's being emotionally available and sensitive and reacting. So all of those years of training for me were about learning to look for the little cues. Great example is when somebody laughs. If you have a witness and you ask them a question about something serious, traumatic, or relating to their pain and they laugh, chase it. Your follow-up questions are dedicated to the thing that they laughed at. And this is where you just kind of have to have the experience to read it you're either confronting them and saying, you know, I noticed you laughed when you talked about not being able to play ball with your grandkids. Did you know that you do that? And sometimes it's simply knowing, hey, this is the kind of person, and this goes back where Alex has said questions and concerns. When we ask them that, we're getting to know them. And we're figuring out when that laugh comes up, is this somebody I need to call it out? Or is this someone I just put it in my back pocket and go, once we've made progress towards emotional availability, I'm going to double back to this thing that they laughed about because I know it's sensitive. So a laugh is something that will set us off and tell us like, that's a cue.
2: Yeah. And what's interesting too, is that all of these things are things that relate back to acting. So even with metaphors, I do a lot of work with my acting students on emotional availability and how to tap into that as an actor and how to be aware of your own emotional blocks and I always can tell that a student or a client is hitting on an emotional aspect when they explain it using similes or metaphors, because that's how our brain understands emotions. So, you know, having a student say, I feel like my insides are being put through a laundry machine. It's like, okay, so that's really specific. I now know what that feels like for you. And that means that you're connecting to it in a deeper way. That's not so much in your head and logical and trying to untease an emotion. You're actually experiencing it. And same with the micro expressions. When I came on board and was talking to Andrew about this work, I was like, oh, that's ALBA work, which is an emotional access availability tool that we use as actors, where we look at six main emotions. You can kind of think about them like primary colors. You can mix them together to create minor emotions, but there's six main emotions, and there's a breath pattern, a body pattern, and a facial expression pattern for each emotion. And we all cover them eventually at some point, because we can't just go throughout our day expressing wild rage. But you become really adept at noticing the triggers and then seeing how people cover. So what Andrew's talking about with laughter, that's a very common cover. And so oftentimes, what we're doing is we're seeing the trigger, we're seeing the cover. And then we're either like Andrew's saying, calling out the cover in the moment or just clocking the cover and saying, okay, later on, I'm going to bring up that cover and see if they're aware of it. Because really what we're seeing when we get to them, like we said, people are bad about talking about their pain. So really what we're watching is a bunch of defense mechanisms at play in trying to remove those defense mechanisms to get to the real story of what's going on with them.
4: And I'm reminded of the last case we worked on together, Alex, and you were talking to a teenage girl who had something terrible happen to her. She was burned when she was younger. And she had a lot of defense mechanisms and she used humor and you picked up on it and then started talking about how she used humor and you were able to get her guard down and start talking more honestly about why she does that.
2: And that's an example, too, of what Andrew was talking about earlier of when do you say, hey, do you know that you do this? Hey, do you know that you use humor? If I had come out right out of the gate saying that to her as soon as I recognized it, I would have lost her. She was someone where it was really important to build trust from the get-go and kind of lean into the humor with her, make jokes, build up that relationship. So then later on, you know, 20, 30 minutes into the session, now that's the time to say, do you know that you do this? I do that too. Can you tell me about that? Because I know I use it this way. How do you use it? And now it's a conversation and they don't feel like they're being you know, analyzed in a psych session. And that's another example too of by the time we came in, I mean, this had happened six years ago and this poor girl had told her story to so many people that by the time we come in, we don't want to be just another therapist. And I'm not saying anything bad about therapists. Therapists are amazing. They do excellent work, but we want to be a different tool for them.
3: And I'll say a piece about this, about Alex, which is, you know, when Alex joined our team, she was younger than I really think a person should be to be able to do this kind of work. But she's bright and she has sky level empathy. And the thing that Alex really brought to the table for us is, you know, when you're a teenage girl and you have talked to a bunch of middle-aged and old white guys and they don't operate on your level to have somebody like Alex in the picture who has, you know, not that far removed from living your life and can understand what you're going through, I think that opens up a gateway massively. And in fact, when you guys reached out to me and you know, I was saying I really want to bring somebody else in, I really want to bring somebody else in and we had worked together successfully on other cases, the decision to bring her in, I think is what broke open that case because for us that was a chain reaction. That was, it. once we had her trust and she knew that we were on her side and she was willing to open up, that was like a domino that fell because that affected how the parents related to us. And I think even ultimately opened up doors for their relationships with the attorneys.
4: It did. I remember the mom saying, I think she said it to you, Alex, that her daughter, after you talked to her the first time, told her she had never opened up to anybody about what she'd been through like she had with you. It was a beautiful moment. I mean, those are the moments you live for in doing this work. Andrew, I know you and John were doing – it was two families actually. Two kids got burned. You and John were doing the prep sessions – for the other family.
0: And wasn't there a breakthrough, John? Yeah, one of the things that's a challenge and frustrating and I'm not always successful in solving it, to be honest, is we deal in tragedies and people's lives are all upside down and horrible things happen to them. And I'm thinking of a case in particular when I represented clients who lost their 19-year-old son in a construction accident. He was a construction worker and mom could barely get through a conversation with you. And Mm -hmm. it had gone on for months, more than a year, and things hadn't gotten better. And his dad never broke down, very stoic, yes, no, very businesslike in all the dealings. I never could really get through to him. And I just remember in the deposition, and I probably didn't do as good of a job as I could have or should have prepping him. He was asked just randomly, he'd gotten through the whole deposition. Again, it was very businesslike. Have you ever visited your son's grave? And this had been a couple of years after he died. And he said, every day. And I was like, wow, I didn't bring that out. The defense attorney brought that out. But it reminds me. Of the case Tim was talking about where Andrew, you recall the father of the young boy, the boy who was burned. He was very much that same way. Very stoic, angry, certainly. Why don't you tell us about, I mean, what was your approach with him?
3: Honestly, I'm not being false humble when I say this. That was not a difficult case for us. Whereas the teenager was very difficult. The father was not a difficult case for us because he responded to the techniques that we have developed in the way that we would anticipate he would respond, we just needed to execute, if that makes sense. So let me step back and then I'll move forward to that one. The work that we do, as much as I like to take credit, and I'd say maybe 20% of my portfolio, and probably true for Alex, is stuff that we've brought from our own life experience. Me with the performance aspects, Alex doing phenomenal work with voice and movement, and especially with women. But the bulk of the witness prep work, overwhelmingly, is the life work of Catherine James. Catherine started doing this so long ago, and she's enshrined it now in a book, Harvesting Witnesses Stories. What she trained me to do, and then we in turn trained Alex and the rest of our team to do, is to deploy a series of strategies that will open the doors. And that phrase, harvesting witnesses' stories is the key to this whole equation. So for example, this is a guy who, talking about that case, he was tough, right? And he was keeping it together for the entire family. And that is something you see in parents in American culture. They need to keep it together and they can't feel and they can't break down. And so what I did with him is I would just ask for stories. Tell me what it was like. You know, tell me where were you when you got the phone call? If I remember correctly on that case, he was still a little disconnected. So one of the strategies that I used was I said, you know, you're telling me about this as it happened in the past. Can you go back and sort of pick up where you left off or where I've interrupted you in the story, but tell it to me in the present tense? Taking it into the present tense started to open emotional gateways. And once I took him to the present tense, he immediately jumped forward in the story because he was now emotionally connected to the part of the story that was toughest for him, which if you've worked a lot of burn cases, the hardest part of burn cases is the recovery period where in essence, the burn unit is peeling off your skin on a regular basis. And for him, the description was watching his child go through those skin peels over and over again. And he was still resisting connection to that. And I asked him sensory questions. Do you remember what it felt like? Was it cold? Was it warm? Do you remember what it smelled like? Your smell is actually a huge gateway. It is the one of our senses that is most connected towards emotion. Right? And if you've ever done a burn case... If you're not putting smell into your opening argument and your closing argument, and you're not a listening smell testimony, you know the smell of burning human flesh is something that jurors can imagine, even if they've never experienced it. So taking him through, and for him, it was the table. It was the cold table, right? He had a sensory connection to that. And once we got to the cold table, he was connected to his pain, and that was our gateway.
0: Andrew, I remember the phrase, I don't remember if I'm saying it exactly the way you said it, but you told them now's not the time to be strong, but now's the time to be honest or tell the truth.
3: Yeah, that is something that we talk about a lot. The idea that vulnerability is strength. A YouTube TED Talk phenomenon, Brene Brown did a piece like 10 years ago, how vulnerability is strength. And she's become like a big pop icon in the self-help category. But I remember when I first saw that, my actor friends and I were all going, yeah, duh. (laughs) Because we know, and I use the example with men a lot, which is why does a strong man stand up with his chest out, right? Why is that the case? Standing with your chest out is basically saying to the world, I am not afraid to be vulnerable, right? that connecting to your weaknesses and moving forward through weakness is a greater sign of strength than stealing yourself against your weaknesses. It's that old idea that courage isn't not feeling fear, it's persisting in spite of fear. And so a lot of the times, it's the average American man sort of in the workplace accident who's trying to be tough, but we also see it a lot, and we didn't see it in this particular case, in what I call the great American mom. And it's embodied in the idea that mom eats last, right? That mom's gonna take all the slings and arrows for the entire family and hide it and not let anybody know that she's suffering until she gets a chance to talk to us. And we tell her, you know, admitting that you're hurt is strength. And then there's one other thing that I wanna say about this that is crucial because John was kind of, you're getting on yourself earlier and you're like, I didn't do as good a job as I thought I could. There are limitations to the extent to which you as the advocate can do this because you guys, you have to be their rock and their fighter. And so a big part of our job when we're doing preps is saying, hey, you can open up with me and this tough gal, tough guy who you've hired to represent you, that person's going to do all the fighting. So you don't need to worry about fighting, right? You need to hand all of the fighting and all the toughness over to this person and know that you don't need to keep your guard up because they've got your guard up. They've added some extra guard and they've got you know years of litigation experience adding to your guard. They're going to protect you. It's okay for you to be vulnerable. And it's a lot harder for the person who's going to be doing the protecting. There's a communication thing that basically says. If you say something about yourself, people aren't as likely to believe it or they're going to be inherently skeptical. But if someone else, even if the third party is not trustworthy, says something about you, it's more likely to be believed coming from a third party. We're able to give that advice in a way that I don't think the attorneys can.
4: Bridge the gap between the lawyer and the witness, right? Help the witness understand their role, understand not their role.
3: I think one of the first cases I ever watched
2: Andrew do was he wasn't a tough dad, but he was just a tough dude. And this man was, I think, covered in tattoos and he had been in a really bad car crash. And watching Andrew do this very nuanced dance of getting this man to open up and be vulnerable, this man who was probably raised his entire life to think that, you know, men don't cry and men don't complain and men aren't, you know, wusses or sissies. Watching Andrew do that dance, it was such a just masterclass in the work that we do. And I think that's also what's great about our team is that we have people for each kind of witness. So we can go, who would be best for this witness? Because maybe a dad, a tough protected father, isn't going to open up to me. Someone who looks like their daughter probably won't open up to me in the same way that they would open up to Andrew because maybe you know, subconsciously they're still trying to protect me the way they would be protecting their children from their own pain. So I love that as well about our team that we can assess who might be best for a witness. And Andrew is definitely excellent with the tough dudes.
0: One of the things that I thought was just terrific was the way you alleviate their fears. And I mean, obviously, they're in a whole new world. They don't know what to anticipate. A trial's coming up. Almost all of our clients have never been probably in a courtroom, much less in a trial. And I like the approach of when you physically drew out the courtroom.
3: My terrible, terrible Zoom drawing. Is once that's again. That's why you
2: get a whiteboard. I love my whiteboard. Andrew makes fun of me, but I have it with me right now. It just makes life easier, Andrew.
3: She's got the Tim Russert, you know, Al Gore, George Bush whiteboard that she busts out. I just use the terrible Zoom drawing. So one of the things that, and this is something that's actually not in Catherine's book. This is from my little portfolio that you can only get from this podcast. <laughs> is situational awareness. So Alex talked earlier about the oven on theory of witness preparation, which is if you think the oven's on, you're not going to get anything done. So let's address. And for the overwhelming percentage of folks, the first thing they get at us is like, where am I looking or what am I doing? Like, how does this go? And it's giving them a sense of what the hell is going on. Because what lawyers tend to forget is that this is a completely foreign environment, for these folks. It's intimidating. It's like being invited to a fancy dinner party in a foreign country where you don't know what the appropriate dress is, what the appropriate mannerisms, you know, are we shaking hands, are we bowing? They don't really know what's going on in this world. One of the first things I'll do is I'll draw out the courtroom and I'll walk them through a trial. And I'll say, "You know, it's going to start out, there's going to be questions of the jury, and some of the questions that are going to be asked aren't going to sound like they make any sense. And that's because the lawyers know stuff about what kinds of people are good for a jury and what kinds of people are bad for a jury. And your job is to just kind of sit there and hang out. Then we go into opening statements and explaining to them. One of the things I've learned over the years is like, it alleviates a tremendous amount of stress for a plaintiff to know that an opening statement is not argumentative. And I always tell them like, we all agree we're not gonna argue and then we turn around and do it. You know, that's an opening statement in a nutshell. But I tell them, you know, if it seems like they're not doing a good job arguing, it's because they're not supposed to argue. They're just sneaking some in the door, right? So that moment at the beginning where the plaintiff might be going, my lawyer didn't really argue my case. This is not looking good for me. And it ratchet up their nervousness. We alleviate that in our little intro and they go, okay, this is a movie trailer for the case, not the argument. And then the key point of that story is by mapping out the courtroom, I'm going to tell them... Where is John Simon or Tim going to be standing and why? Right. So I'll draw a line. I'll put the lawyer in that, you know, what I call the 13th juror position. Or in a lot of these cases, it's the seventh juror position because I love six person jury boxes. I'll put him in that 13th juror position. And then I'll draw a line on my little diagram from the witness stand to the lawyer. And then I'll draw a line from the witness stand to the middle of the jury box. And then I'll draw a little angle indicator and say, you see how little of an angle there is from talking to the lawyer and talking to the jury? And then I'll say to them, and you may see instead of, can you please state your name for the record? And if anybody's listening and still saying, can you please state your name for the record? Stop. I'll say, the lawyer may say. Can you introduce yourself to the folks on the jury? And then he'll turn his head. And that'll be like telling you, hey, look at the folks on the jury and talk to them. And then I'll tell the witness, you know, a lot of them, they have a fear that this is public speaking. And so what I'm telling this witness is, and this is one of my favorite pieces of advice to give that I think really puts witnesses at ease. I know you're worried about public speaking, but the good news is this is not going to be a big crowd. You know, you're not OJ right? This is not the trial of the century. There's not going to be a lot of people in the crowd. And one of the things you're going to feel when you go into this trial is this sense that everybody is speaking this other language, lawyer, and everybody's formal and everybody knows, you know, where to sit and where to stand and when to rise. You're going to feel like a fish out of water. And they get nervous when I tell them that. And I go, but I got some good news for you. There's going to be six other people or 12 other people in this courtroom who are even more clueless than you are, and they're the only people that matter. And so what you get to do is the seven of you or the 13 of you, you get to form this little club of normal people, non-lawyer, non-legally speaking people. The little group of you get to connect and talk about what happened while all these lawyers are doing all this lawyer stuff. And when you tell them that and you say, look, it's just like, especially in a six person jury state, you know, it's kind of like sitting at a backyard barbecue, talking to six people. Some of them are going to be nodding and leaning in. And when they nod, you can nod back at them. Some of them are going to be falling asleep and you don't have to like try to wake them up or pay attention to them. Just let them do what they're going to do. Talk to the people that want to talk to you like you would be talking to people at a backyard barbecue. And all of a sudden it takes all of that Stress of the dynamic of the room, and I will circle, put a circle from the witness stand around the jury box, and I will say, What matters in this trial is in this circle. Everything else outside of this circle is Tim's problem. And it takes a huge weight off their shoulders, in my experience.
2: I think this stems back from, as actors, when we have to have training in terms of stage directions and directing and what is effective for audience members when they're in a theater. You know, one of my favorite. Tips: Whenever I'm teaching like a directing class is when we're reading English, we read from left to right. And so seeing someone cross left to right is very comforting for us. It's like our brain is like, this is naturally how our eyes want to move. So in a stage production, if you want something to be really jarring for the audience or to feel against order of out of nature, you have them move from right to left. That like jars our brain in a different way because it's going against the way our brain naturally kind of wants our eyeballs to move through space. So knowing all of this stuff and then transferring it over into a courtroom, I think is really helpful because the jury is the audience. And so storytelling isn't just about the stories that are coming out of the witnesses' mouths. Storytelling is the entire experience that the jury is having in the courtroom. And so how are they also connecting to the witness? How are they connecting to what we call the good lawyer and the bad lawyer? All of that is part of the storytelling as well.
1: There's probably a lot of attorneys out there still who would be thinking, you know, I'm just going to do it my old way, you know, the way I've been doing it for many years. And I thought you might give us an example or just comment on that. This is very different and it might not be obvious. And some of these things that you're suggesting might be even counterintuitive.
2: Yeah. I mean, my favorite thing is when we have lawyers that we're working with for the first time and the first session every now and then they're jumping in and they're saying things like to the witness, like, can you just cry? Can you just look sad? And you can see the witness just so slowly. So you're
0: not talking about me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I am not talking it, okay. about you. I'm just Absolutely, making clear. Not. Absolutely right. <laughs> not. But then I think typically by the end of those sessions, they'll see that we can organically get to that place with the witness In a way that's so much more effective because human beings are actually really good lie detectors in terms of noticing if someone's being untruthful or inauthentic. And the jury's going to pick up on that too.
3: I think the evolution of the legal profession in a lot of ways mirrors my evolution as an actor. When I was a young actor, I was really good because I lived in a world of make believe. And then there was a gap where the quality of my performance really diminished. And it was as I grew older and more self-aware and self-critical and strategic in navigating the world, a lot of the techniques that make actors great were failures for me because I would overthink them and I would outthink them. It's why I think I gravitate towards and connect so much to lawyers because the challenges that lawyers have adapting to the new techniques are the same challenges I had learning to be a good actor as an adult. And that's where I resonated with this technique I was describing earlier, which is Meisner technique. And Meisner is all about no thinking, just feel. No thinking, just feel. What are your impulses? You know, my acting teacher back in the day was this little shaved headed dude who actually worked with Sanford Meisner when he was a younger man who would literally like throw things at me and cuss. It would just be like, stop effing thinking, just effing do, react. And one of the things that I think about when I think about the old technique versus the new technique is the biggest breakthrough I had in terms of my emotional motivations. I had always thought that I was motivated by standing up for the little guy, by doing good, by truth, justice in the American way. That was something that I had always connected with. And yet it was only through Meisner, the exercises are about finding ways to connect to your true emotional impulses, not what you think you feel, but what you really feel. And I discovered along the way that I didn't really believe in standing up for the little guy or truth justice of the American Way. I just wanted to take a baseball bat to the face of bullies. I wasn't driven by idealism. I was driven by some sort of vengeance or anger, and that was a really disheartening thing to learn about myself. Ball, in a lot of ways, and he cites, he gives citations, he mentions Catherine in the book several times, he talks about Susie McPherson, who is sort of the unheralded genius. If you haven't read jury work, you're insane. He sort of boiled it all down to this idea that in many ways is let's stop the bad guys. Let's punish the bad guys which for me was one of the biggest breakthroughs in my development as an actor because, and again, to get into the story, even though I'm big and strong and I'm tall now, I used to just be really skinny. And I got, pardon the language, you can edit this out. I used to get my ass beat. I was that kid at school that everybody picked on. And when I got bigger and I could defend myself, it just meant it only took two or three people. I have this very vivid memory from my childhood of the group of cool kids reading brownies while walking to the football field for PE. And one of them turned and spit just because his mouth was dehydrated and it hit me. And some of the others laughed and several of the others spit on me. I learned about that. I remembered that for the first time in this acting training. And I remember the feeling of just wanting to unload on all of them. And for me, that emotional experience, I realize now is directly tied into why I do the work that I do. And is it noble and is it beautiful? Is it as noble and beautiful as if, say, I was truly just Captain America on the inside? Heck no. But it's the truthful, emotional experience. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about people like Hyde and we talk about Ball. When we talk about the modern case versus the old case, what's really going on in the guts and the hearts of the decision makers that will make them act? It might not be as ideological and pure. But by God, is it true? And that's what we're after in this. We're after truth. I remember when Alex was first working with this, she would use the phrase, you really need to speak your truth. And that's one of the only times I ever really laid down the law and said, no, that does not happen at active communication. We do not do your truth. Okay. There is the truth. And then there is your experience because your emotional experience is valid. It is truth, right? We don't get optional truths. We get experiences so that the jury doesn't feel like they can pick a truth. The jury gets to search for the truth.
1: Thank you for joining us from Active Communication, Andrew Capel Shaw and Alexander Wright. It's been uh, awesome. We've learned a lot from you. We're going to have you back for a second episode. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We're looking forward to it. This has been another episode of The Jury is Out. This is Eric Feith. I'm John Simon. And I'm Tim Cronin. See you next time.
0: The Jury is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.